After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. It's Mind Rolling Podcast. Raghu Marcus here with... David Silver. Welcome. Hi, Dave. Hey, Raghu. Good to see you. Yeah, nice to be back here. And uh, not to be morbid, uh, but uh, we had a bad year last year. We lost a lot of uh, family and friends. And we were looking towards uh, 2014 to be a little bit... It's not uplifting. It's part of life, and we shouldn't be running from anything. On the other hand, uh, too many of them in a row was uh, a bit difficult last year. But uh, unfortunately, uh, David mentioned a good friend of his past, and uh, it so happens uh, I knew him, and many of us will know him because he was a celebrity. Uh, well, tell us who, who yeah, this Yeah, um, the man in question um, is a, a comedian. Uh, David Brenner uh, is his name, and he's known for being what they call an observational comedian. Before Bill Maher, before George Carlin. Mm. Uh, he was a guy that really talked about what was going on in society in terms of madness and insanity and surreal events. Uh, David was my assistant when I was a producer of PBS in the first year of PBS in 1971. And uh, he was just a PA. And uh, he was a wonderful person to work with. That's all I remember, you know. Uh, he worked with me for about eight months before he started coming in every morning with a joke. And he'd made up the joke. It wasn't something he'd heard in a bar. Made me laugh hysterically. And I just thought, this is the funniest man I've ever met. And he was a wonderful assistant, by the way. And then after about, I think it was 10 months of working with me, he came in one morning. He said, David, I just have to tell you something. I want to be a comedian and I want to be a successful one. And that's what I'm going to do. So I'm resigning. I'll give you a week. I love you, man, but I, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I wanted to be on stage doing stand-up. And I, I was so happy for him because I knew how funny he was. He said to me about two days later, he said, I will be on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show within one year. Mm. And I, I didn't yeah. do that thing. You know, I should have actually, I, you know, I should have said, oh, right, you know. But I didn't because I trusted him. Uh, nine months later, he was on the Tonight Show. Two years later, he was hosting the Tonight Show as the number one substitute for Johnny Carson. And as it said in the Times this morning, he has a record. He was on The Tonight Show 158 times, more than anybody, more than anybody mm. we know of, because Johnny loved him so much because he was a very, um, you know, he just could comment ad lib on anything. What I wanted to mention was that David's dream, he projected it and he told me he projected it. He said, comedian, make up my own jokes, look at society, get known, perform in Hollywood and New York, get onto the Carson show, host the Carson show. Mm. 
He did it all. Now, later, he got his own talk show, which failed. But he was one of the most successful Vegas comedians, and uh, that sounds a bit derogatory, but he was a really funny man. And all I can say is that from him, I learned something, which was if there's something in your heart, um, it can be, you know, materialistic right through to a spiritual aspiration, and you focus. It seems that it comes. You really have to focus, though. It doesn't come by just the thinking of it. It's work. And David worked at this. And uh, many years later, uh, sometime in the late 80s, I was walking down Central Park South, where all the posh hotels are, and a big black limo pulled up, and David jumped out and grabbed me and hugged me and kissed me, actually, and said, th and said thanks so much, man, uh, for being so nice when I told you I didn't want to work with you anymore. And you see, it worked, and anything can work. And my life is so fulfilled right now, and uh, I, I cannot tell you this dream came true. Now, you know, you hear all this kind of stuff all the time. Like, Your dreams can come true. But <laughs> I think it's a question of focus, Raghu. And I just want to finish by saying, bless you. I wanted to finish by saying that, you know, death occurs all the time, everywhere, every second. And it's always traumatic and, and sad. But in a, in a conversation with Roshi Joan Halifax, Roshi Joan asked Ramdas recently, uh, is it worth dying, sacrificing your life for a social principle? Uh, you know, mm. and uh, Ramdas said yes. And then he sort of flicked his finger and said, just an incarnation, just an incarnation. And his overview, which we all learn from, uh, uh, is very soothing to me. Uh, at this point in our lives when one does lose friends and not to get too crazed about it. I guess if you're an atheist, totally, it could be devastating. A person has gone and gone to dust. But for those who know that there's a sort of a portal, a portal, death is a portal. And um, as Emmanuel said and Ram Dass quoted, death is safe. Uh, you don't get too crazed about it because you know that it will be you too. And uh, anyway, David, wherever you are, love you, man. Mm. And uh, I'll always, I'll always love you. Mm. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I remember seeing him a lot. Uh, so you're, you're making me think of something now. Um, talking, I mean, talking about death. And uh, I, I mentioned this to you. There is a book that uh, just came out very recently. called the miraculous 16th karmapa so he is uh, like the dalai lama uh, is the 14th so there's 14 uh, incarnations you were talking about incarnations and that's what uh, triggered me and uh, so there's 17 karmapas so he uh, it goes it's so that lineage goes even further back than the Dalai Lama, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. So this book is just all people's stories of encounters with him. It is just fantastic. Uh, it is um, uh, the woman who wrote it is Norma Levine, and uh, it's uh, it's a very very small publisher. Uh, but I'm, I believe you can get it on Amazon. Not believe. I'm 100%. You can get it on Amazon, which brings me to the next... Qu <laughs> 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 uh, 
One thing leads to another. I'm so sorry. Uh, we need you to go in and buy this book, or as Dave says, your next washing machine, uh, through our portal. And you talked about the death portal. See, I'm connecting it all up, Dave. You're a and genius. I and if really? You, if you please, please could bookmark Amazon on your desktop. And then whenever you think to go buy anything, go through that portal. We will get, you know, a very small percentage as an affiliate of Amazon. It is how one of the major ways it's turning out that we are able to support continuing to do this podcast, which we love doing. And uh, we really ask all of you, if you please can go to uh, mindrollingpodcast.com and you'll see right on the menu is the uh, Amazon portal. And all you got to do is click that and then bookmark it. And then every time you go to Amazon. And so this book is there. And that led me to mention this. We also still uh, love to, to get direct support through donations, uh, buying something in a store, our T-shirts or mugs, uh, and also Audible, audible.com slash trial. Uh, you'll go and we have a portal there and that uh, we're going to come up with something great on that day, by the way, I have a, a new book that uh, we're doing on the Ramdas side of things and that's going to be available on audible. So we're going to get, so you get a free uh, subscription uh, when, and then we get a piece uh, um, and you can cancel it if you don't like it. Uh, it's got, you know, wonderful books, audiobooks. Okay, enough of that. I did the whole thing. Usually you, you kind of help me, but... You, no, you were consummate. I, I can't interrupt consummate. When, you, when, when you're that good. You know, I can't. All right, can I read something uh, from... Oh, please do. Would you mind explaining just a little bit about Karmapa? Okay. Uh, um, so, well, he is known um, as uh, a truly... Uh, a Siddha, or a completely realized uh, being um, coming out of the Tibetan uh, tradition. I don't, I mean, I think he's also recognized as one of, you know, one of the, uh, you know, like Padmasambhava or something like that. You know, I don't know enough about Tibetan Buddhism to to really be able to say that. All I know, and for me, it's all, Dave, you know, I mean, I love the Tibetans and I love the way that they are able to translate reality it just makes so much sense and so i've always been drawn to them and um in this particular case i knew nothing about the karmapa and and literally he's you know it would be uh, the panchen lama the dalai lama the panchen lama and i think then karmapa in terms of the hierarchy of tibetan buddhism uh, even that i'm not certain of but so Karmapa happened. I was in Los Angeles, and he he used to give this thing called the black hot, uh, hat ceremony, and at the end you you he would uh, see everybody. I mean, it was an amazing thing, a huge audience, and put a uh, you know as the Tibetans do, bless you with a silk scarf. You give it to him, and he puts it around your neck, and and you know so you have you know it's like called darshan or being in the presence of you know an, an exalted being. Anyhow, when I got about ten feet from him in line. And again, I knew nothing about black hat ceremonies. I had had the f good fortune of being with uh, uh, some very high lamas just in my time in India. Um, and I got within 10 feet of him, and I completely felt whatever it is that uh, I couldn't... It's the indescribable that I felt when I was with Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, my guru, our guru. And... Uh, I just was flabbergasted. Holy 
geez, this is the same, you know, and it all, there can't be different, you know, and those beings, several of which I, I met uh, of that stature, it was always the same thing, which just absence of duality and complete, utter compassion, love, kind, you know, the whole thing without doing anything. They didn't teach, they're just being. And so, so I had that experience come about two summers ago, and I've told this before, uh, this particular part of the story, through grace I, I got, so he died, excuse me, he died in 1981 or two in Chicago of cancer and a hospital. And uh, as a matter of fact, you know, it, it, one of the stories in here talks about how his monks uh, came to him, you know, they were just so distressed and, um, you know, uh, losing him and, and so on and so of course, you know, naturally so. And he looked at them with a quizzical look and he said, nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> nothing happens. You know? <laughs> uh, so great. Um, so anyhow, he left and two summers ago, uh, so his reincarnate, uh, Tulku, the 17th Karmapa, uh, I don't remember his, his Tibetan name, uh, but he came. He w- he came to America. He's like tw- uh, at this point, he's like high. Uh, I don't know, late twenties, twenty eight, twenty nine. He may be thirty now. Um, and he came the second time to a Dalai Lama event in Washington, which I went to a couple of years ago. And through grace of Sharon, really Sharon Salzberg, uh, she got me into just a few people, me and Krishna, Sharon, a few other people, in in uh, Karmapa's room in a hotel in Washington, just to sit with him. And it was very nothing, no spiritual nothing. Although I did bring the silk scarf, the kata, and you know, and Krishna, who's really. Um, was effusively hanging with him where I was like, whoa, uh, you know, he amazing, amazing being. Anyhow, Krishnas was offering him Wyoming at the time. He was saying, you know, why don't you come over here? Wyoming's just like uh, Tibet. You could have Wyoming and just hang there with the Lama, which is a good idea. Uh, and he laughed. And so it was that kind of convivial atmosphere. And then he put this scarf on me and um, at the end and just, you know, saying goodbye and just, you know, just contacted me directly. And um, I completely, utterly w- experienced what that is when, because it was the same thing as the 16th. <laughs> you know, that whole thing of, of you know, that whatever it is, that's soul, which they don't have any soul in Buddhism, but clear mind, whatever you want to call it, it's all the same thing. We are just using different names uh, for whatever our particular bent is. Um, whatever it is, was there in that 17th. Even this young guy, he was at the time probably 27, 8 years old. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And I'll tell you that I was so deeply affected, and I'm not, as you know, Dave, I don't just in public do... Uh, display any nothing and I could not help but I had to just uh, I was in a deep meditative process and I couldn't shake it even I thought because we were going to another event and we had to go to this other event a group of us and I was like really gone Um, so that whole thing uh, was just fascinating to me of, of sort of just really experiencing the continuity it's real, folks. It is absolutely real. Here's the story. You know, you know, before oh. you tell the story, okay. I just wanted you, uh, something I found out was the 16th Karmapa was taught by the 10th 
mind-rolling Trichin. Oh, really? His teacher was a mind-rolling lineage master. And as you know, we are mind-rolling mm, men. Mind-rolling men. Are we men? Aspirants. Are we mind-rollers? <laughs> <We are. laughs> yeah, please tell the story. <laughs> okay, its story is, I am Karmapa, remember? So, uh, and this is a great story. He was in Maui. So he went to Maui, and he was. In, he said, "So uh, this guy who's telling the story is an American who was born in uh, Hawaii, and ended up serving uh, Karmapa when he would come to the United States." Okay, so he was a, a disciple. We were in Lahaina in Maui, browsing around the shops right before a big Vajra crown ceremony at a Japanese Buddhist temple. I mentioned we were going to be late, and I urged His Holiness to get going. As the driver, I felt it was my duty to get to the event uh, to the next event on time. He just looked at me with astonishment and said, I am Karmap Karmapa, remember? I know when it's time to go. <laughs> he went on shopping, fascinated by all the red coral in Hawaii. Finally, we got into the car near the Pioneer Inn. As I was running the car around a straggly old hippie, <laughs> you can see this, right, in Lahaina, in, in Maui, right, where all the hippies are, came up to our brand new shiny Cadillac. It was the best car you could get in 1975, and this old hippie guy was knocking on my window. Hey, I hear there's some dude up the road giving some kind of religious ceremony. I'd like a ride. <laughs> I said, excuse <laughs> me, sir, and motioned him to go away. As Karmapa's clean-shaven, short-haired driver, driver wearing the new suit he had bought for me, <laughs> I felt embarrassed by the incident. I rolled up the window and drove on. Karma, Karmapa asked me what the man wanted. I said he wanted a ride. Karmapa said, well, let's give him a ride then. So Karmapa and Jamgon Kongtrul, another great uh, lama, were in the back seat, and Joel Wiley and I were in the front. I turned the Cadillac around, and the hippie got in the front seat between, between Joel and I. As soon as he got in, he seemed a bit stunned, perhaps, from being in the same small space with Karmapa. Then as we started to drive to the temple for the crown ceremony, Karmapa touched him on the shoulder and said, O Mane Padmehung, he did the mantra. Joel turned to him and said, I think Karmapa wants you to say O Mane Padmehung. So he started to try to say it, but he could barely get it out. Karmapa asked him what he did for a living. I felt he was a little embarrassed to say he worked at McDonald's or something like that. Karmapa told him to go on saying, O manne pebmehung. By that time, we had almost reached the Japanese Buddhist temple where the Vajra crown was to be held. We arrived as the jollings were sounding the horns. This was the biggest event the Karmapa ever did in Maui, the Vajra crown ceremony by the ocean with hundreds of people present. His Holiness Karmapa got out. Then the hitchhiker got out. Karmapa turned to him and said, as a result of getting into the car with us today, all your bad karma from your previous lives has been erased. While the horns were blasting that deep, eerie sound and throngs of people were bowing to Karmapa, he made his way through the masses. The hippie stood there completely awestruck by the entire experience, like someone experiencing a total mind transformation. I was also overwhelmed by the realization that Karmapa had the power to alter an individual's karma 
and assist them to wake up instantly to a higher purpose. Wow. That is incredible. My God, it just precipitated. It just made me think of something utterly different and yet in some weird way the same. Um, in 1983, uh, myself and four other humans were invited to shoot a video of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards at Jimi Hendrix's studio on 8th Street in New York, Electric Lady Studio. And um, we'd been trying to do this for a month, but they were making an album called Emotional Rescue, and they didn't in particular want to work with us. But then they called us and said they did want us to shoot it. So we went, and it was late. It was 2 in the morning. And it's a very difficult studio to get into. There's a little uh, stairway, a narrow stairway that you have to climb up. And we had tons of equipment. When we arrived, uh, the Stones uh, roadies arrived. So we all were sort of packing our equipment, trying to carry up the stairs together, them and us and helping each other and everything. And there was one hippie who seemed to be a part of their crew, though he looked a bit disheveled to me. But he was helping carry stuff and everything. And we finally got it into what was Jimi Hendrix's bedroom, I believe. Uh, but it was now the sort of outer part of the control room. And we all got in there. And other people, Bob Clearmountain, the very amazing producer and sound mixer, was doing the record. Keith Richards was in the booth uh, playing uh, the lead. And Jagger was directing the whole thing. He started. And then Mick beckoned over to me and took me in the corner. He didn't know me. He said, uh, I know this is your crew and everything. Is he with you? I said, who? He said, that guy over there. I said, no. I assumed he was with you. He said, no, he's not with us. I said, oh, really? He said, oh, I'll take care of this. So I went up with Mick over to the hippie, and Mick said to him, uh, who are you? And uh, the guy told him, and he was visibly shaking. Who was? And the, the hippie. Uh -huh. And he had long, long, straggly hair and very sort of unkempt appearance. And Jagger said to him, listen, uh, my dear friend John Lennon was shot on 72nd Street by someone who just walked into his life. And I'll never miss anyone as much as I miss John. Uh, and, you know, this is just not acceptable. And the kid burst into tears and said, oh, I... I just, I just love this stuff so much. I've always loved this stuff so much. I found out you were going to be here, and I just thought maybe you'd let me in. I really did. I'm so sorry. I'll go. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and Mick put his hands on his shoulders, and he said, see over there, there's a chair in the corner. Go sit there, get yourself a Heineken, and hang out. You're all right. And the kid hung out all night and changed over in that few hours. He changed from being scared to being a part of a conversation with me and our crew and Mick and Keith and Bob Clearmountain was actually a part of the conversation. At one point, Jagger asked him what he thought of the track. <laughs> the kid was able to speak by that time. And when we left in the morning, um, I said to Mick Jagger, that was really gracious of you. I mean, I was really moved by that. He said, well, I looked in his eyes and he was all right, man. He was okay. Why shouldn't he sit in here? It's all right. I liked him. And I know Mick isn't the karma, but to that kid, 31 years ago, mm. he was as great a being as you, that, that guy would imagine at that time. And the kindness that him and then later Keith Richards showed to him moved me profoundly mm. because the Stones were not known for their warm, fuzzy, loving, compassionate attitude. They were a hard-nosed bunch of guys. But I think they saw something there, a moment, when they could redeem some of that hardness 
by showing some compassion to a person that was just so, so, so into them. Mm. And I mean, uh, some people maybe are just going, oh, that comparison is odious. The 17th Karmapa and, uh, and Michael Philip Jagger, I don't think so. Mm. But, you know, any act of kindness uh, that allows someone else in on your scene for a minute or two, if your scene is worth getting in on, as long as you are, you know, cognizant of, of your own safety and those around you, is a great step forward for me because I know that it takes a, it takes um, it takes a little bit of courage uh, to to make that jump, mm. take that risk, allow someone to move in the same space as you or the people you're with. Mm. And um, I've never forgotten that moment. It was wonderful. I'm sorry for keep name dropping on this show. It's just been my life. What you know, name? Yeah, this <laughs> guy bumps into everybody, not just yeah. through his work, by the way. He can just be walking on the beach, and, you know, we're not going to tell that story. I love that. That's my favorite <laughs> story. I don't know. I'd like to hear it every, uh, you know, every few months. Every quarter, you could probably tell that story of being accosted and dragged into a mansion on the beach in Malibu by a beautiful woman. Only Dave. But yeah. uh, th but I do want to say something about this, that, yeah, no, he's not Karmapa, obviously, and doesn't, you know, uh, I mean, the power to change not just someone's uh, moment, life, and previous life is is beyond anything, and it's it's hard to even conceive of. Um, but uh, but in this moment, the the power of compassion allowed that moment to take place for this person and I'm sure affected him in, a, in his life deeply. I mean, if you could ever find that person again, if any, if you're listening out there, whoever you may have been, I'm sure you'll never have forgotten, uh, forgotten to, uh, you know, the experience you had at uh, Electric Ladyland. So um, the moment certainly is transforming if, if we can get into that, you know, where Jagger went to in that moment. Uh, I, you know, I guess he's capable of it, even though, you know, whatever else we... You hear about him being a very hard-nosed businessman guy. Um, never mind, you know, one of the greatest rock bands ever, if not the greatest. So, Dave, um, I, I want to introduce something else here. And uh, you and I have uh, talked about this. I found this. I don't know how I found this. But it's a, uh, it's a short talk. I don't... Uh, it's from Alan Watts. And it's Alan Watts talking about... Carl Jung, the great, great uh, uh, psychologist. Uh, I mean, you talk about, just tell us about Jung for a second. Could you, a man of letters, are far Well, more you know, I, I'm by no means an expert on Jung, but what I do know is that uh, he was one of the great Viennese um, uh, psychologists and uh, the first, really, with Freud. He broke away from Freud uh, because he differentiated um, his analysis of the mind from Freud, who basically, I mean, this is a bit of a simplification, but Freud basically said sex is behind everything and, 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 you know, <laughs> and your, and your mother. And I tend to agree with that. Yes. But, but, um, Jung said, well, that may be, um, will, will be true, Sigmund, but there are archetypes. There is the unconscious, there is the collective unconscious. And underneath that is a spiritual plane of consciousness, which informs our moods, our direction in life and so forth. So Jung was the first to actually take on uh, much more of a universal approach 
to the mind in terms of the archetypes. Mm -hmm. And he was a very uh, I mean, enormously influential person in the 20th century. Mm. And, uh, you know, it came and it was uh, really around the heart and, of course, around interpreting dreams and so on. This particular th uh, th thing is called uh, is around acceptance of the darkness of oneself. Um, and it's a tremendous thing. So it's uh, it's about eight minutes long, everybody out there. But, uh, you know, we really feel this is an incredible talk. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, let's just play it. And then we'll, we'll talk about it uh, right after. And there was a sort of twinkle in Jung's eye that gave me the impression that he knew himself to be as just as much a villain as everybody else. There's a nice German word, Hintergedanke, which means a thought in the very far, far back of your mind. Jung had a Hintergedanke in the back of his mind, which showed, it showed in the twinkle in his eye, it showed that he knew and recognized what I've sometimes called the element of irreducible rascality in himself. And he knew it so strongly and so clearly and in a way so lovingly that he would not condemn the same thing in others and therefore would not be led into those thoughts, feelings and acts of violence towards others which are always characteristic of the people who project the devil in themselves upon the outside, upon somebody else, upon the scapegoat. Now, this made Jung a very integrated character. In other words, here I have to present a little bit of a complex idea. He was a man who was thoroughly with himself. Having seen and accepted his own nature profoundly, he had a kind of uh, unity and absence of conflict in his own nature which had to it this additional complication that I find so fascinating. He was the sort of man who could feel anxious and afraid and guilty without being ashamed of feeling this way. In other words, he understood that an integrated person is not a person who simply eliminated the sense of guilt or the sense of anxiety from his life who is fearless and wooden and a uh, kind of sage of stone. He's a person who feels all these things, but has no recrimination against himself for feeling them. And this is, to my mind, uh, a profound kind of humor. You know, in humor there's always a certain element of malice. There was a talk given on the Pacifica stations just a little while ago, which was an interview with Al Cap, and Al Cap made the point that he felt that all humor was fundamentally malicious. Now, there's a very high kind of humor, which is humor at oneself, uh, malice towards oneself, the recognition of the fact that behind the social role that you assume, behind all your pretensions to being either a good citizen or a fine scholar or a great scientist or 
a leading politician or physician or whatever you happen to be. But behind this facade, there is a certain element of the unreconstructed bum. Not as something to be condemned and wailed over, but as something to be recognized as contributive to one's greatness and to one's positive aspect in the same way that manure is contributive to the perfume of the rose. Jung saw this and Jung accepted this. And I want to read a passage from one of his lectures, which I think is one of the greatest things he ever wrote and which has been a very marvelous thing for me. It was in a lecture delivered to a group of clergy in Switzerland a considerable number of years ago and he writes as follows. People forget that even doctors have moral scruples and that certain patients' confessions are hard even for a doctor to swallow. Yet the patient does not feel himself accepted unless the very worst in him is accepted too. No one can bring this about by mere words. It comes only through reflection and through the doctor's attitude towards himself and his own dark side. If the doctor wants to guide another or even accompany him a step of the way, he must feel with that person's psyche. He never feels it when he passes judgment. Whether he puts his judgments into words or keeps them to himself makes not the slightest difference. To take the opposite position and to agree with the patient offhand is also of no use, but estranges him as much as condemnation. Feeling comes only through unprejudiced objectivity. This sounds almost like a scientific precept, and it could be confused with a purely intellectual, abstract attitude of mind. But what I mean is something quite different. It is a human quality, a kind of deep respect for the facts, for the man who suffers from them, and for the riddle of such a man's life. The truly religious person has this attitude. He knows that God has brought all sorts of strange and inconceivable things to pass, and seeks in the most curious ways to enter a man's heart. He therefore senses in everything the unseen presence of the divine will. This is what I mean by unprejudiced objectivity. It is a moral achievement on the part of the doctor, who ought not to let himself be repelled by sickness and corruption. We cannot change anything unless we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate. It oppresses. Uh, I am the oppressor of the person I condemn, not his friend and fellow sufferer. I do not in the least mean to say that we must never pass judgment when we desire to help and improve. But if the doctor wishes to help a human being, he must be able to accept him as he is. And he can do this in reality, only when he has already seen and accepted himself as he is. Perhaps this sounds very simple, but simple things are always the most difficult. In actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple, and so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, 
all these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, yea, the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved, what then? Then, as a rule, the whole truth of Christianity is reversed. There is then no more talk of love and long-suffering. We say to the brother within us, Raka, and condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide him from the world. We deny ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves, and had it been God himself who drew near to us in this despicable form, we should have denied him a thousand times before a single cock had crowed. There you go. Unbelievable talk. Um, Dave, let's just... Uh, I mean, there's so many things in here, and um, I don't know. I I I would like to. Uh, there's even just terms like the element of irreducible irreducible rascality. I love that. But just this idea of accepting, you know, that we we have we all of us, as he says, have that villain inside. Um, but the fact uh, that there's a twinkle, you know, he talked about Jung knew he had the, you know, the villain, the rascal inside of him, but there was a twinkle. So it was, he knew it so lovingly. I, you know, that a lot of this, I mean, again, you and I, and, you know, and of course I do these podcasts uh, with Ramdas, as we all know, uh, those of you who don't um, go to ramdas.org and uh, Ramdas Here and Now podcast, which are uh, just taking uh, his talks, and I clip them uh, into pieces uh, which have a, you know a certain focus that I'm just uh, hearing really deeply, and then just talk a little bit about it. So uh, this it's amazing because you know just this right here. Um, is so connective with stuff that I've been doing with, with Ram Dass, who talks about, um, you know, acknowledging the, you know, the, the negative emotions and, you know, negative thoughts and all of that and uh, acknowledging it within ourselves and instead of running from it, embracing it with love. And that's how to transform. So there's so much of that in here. Um, you know, I, I just uh, think this is a, a, an extraordinary piece that, uh, you know what, I think we should do. We should, Dave, we should actually uh, transcribe this and make it available. Yes, but, I yeah, agree. What did you, yeah, tell me what I, you... I love this piece, just as you do. I'm so grateful to you for turning me on to it. Uh, <laughs> and here comes another, another moment in... Uh, 1969, I think. It's um, a new book, The Many Lives of David yeah, Bernard right. Silver. Somebody in L.A., I think it was Lowell George, the uh, guitar player, uh, played with a band called Little Feet, knew Alan Watson, gave me his number, and um, I uh, called him on the phone, got him, talked to him for as long as he wanted to talk, which was a couple of hours. And he, we didn't talk about this exact thing, but I do remember this. Uh, we were both English, both residents in the United States, and he was very untypical of, of many English intellectuals because he really wasn't an intellectual. He was a visionary and was so sweet and just so uh, loving on the phone to someone he didn't know. But uh, I explained why I called him 
and I called him uh, because of uh, confusion about some of the uh, journeys I'd taken on um, uh, lysergic acid and wanted to know whether one had to take all of the information and data occurring and, and feelings during a trip or whether you could discard some. And he went into huge detail about this and was so um, loving is the only word. But even now, all these years later, I remember that he did talk about this a little bit in the sense mm. of saying that we all have within us the entire universe. And you could say, well, that includes Mars, Venus, and, you know, whatever. But it also includes uh, darkness and the karma that comes from individuation and, and the, the, the sort of move away from unity into the individual uh, which many spiritual masters talk about, that there's a difference between individuated consciousness and the individual. Mm. And what he's talking about here is the individual who condemns the other and creates that us-them thing is doing no help to anyone. And the, the best way to look at it is to see, I have those impulses. Now let's try and understand why you have them. If you start from there, then you're a good therapist or a good friend. And you can actually have a conversation which is not condemnation. And I think I love this because what it does is it releases people from that awful feeling that they're doing something wrong all the time and other people are doing things right all the time. We've all been through that, even at school when you're a kid. And then when someone like Alan Watts or Maharaji Nimkarali Baba, great masters, and not that they're the same, but great teachers and masters, ascended masters, they all will eventually get to the point of saying, you know, look, look, look to yourself, look, look, look at yourself and see what you've been experiencing. You know, not just guilt, but anger and condemnation and, you know, real hatred. You know, mm. I, I mean, I guess that's why people like shows like Dexter on TV, yeah. because they show the hidden serial killer. I prefer myself to um, to not see too much of that, because I don't think that's necessarily redemptive to see other people doing it over and over and over again. I think what's important is what he says here, Raghu, which you um, mentioned already, but this thing of no recrimination, mm. you know, that you can't recriminate and help. You know, yes, judgment, and he says in there, yes, some judgment is necessary sometimes in order to stay safe and in order to warn other people about possible hazards. But the judgment of individuals and saying, uh, you know, that you are a bad person, and I am pretty good person. Yeah. I'm going to tell you how to live. Yeah. And uh, Raga, you've been saying for all of these 60 broadcasts that we've done, 60 podcasts, that we try not to pontificate here and base our observations on direct experience. And I can't, I mean, it, 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 so many times in, one li in one's life, you know, you make this mistake of going, I hate that person or that person is doing something so terrible, you know. How could George Bush do this? How could Barack Obama have not done that? Just so that those out of you, there's some of you out there who've written us letters saying that we're very biased against right-wingers. And uh, so I'm balancing this out a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's very hard. You watch CNN and you see some nincompoop talking nonsense and lies about the poor. It's hard not to go, oh, this person is a total, complete, unredeemed asshole. And I've done it a million times. Yeah. I think what... Alan Watts is saying about Jung is that Jung had that self-knowledge, self-awareness, and that's why he's been so incredibly influential 
upon the 20th and now the 21st centuries, that people understand that with all the complications of the red book and all his uh, clinical stuff, he's still able to turn around, as you said before, Raghav, that he knows he's just a human being. Mm. And he has some perceptions, God knows why, karmic, you know, progress, who knows why anybody knows anything. But he was able to get down to earth and say, do not condemn, appreciate, and then help. And, um, you know, you have some more quotes from this uh, that we can go to, Raga. Yeah, actually, if, let, me, let me just say something, because there's something in here which is interesting based on... Uh, people ask me sometimes, um, you know, you, you met Neem Karoli Baba all those years ago. You've been doing spiritual practices and so on. What, what is... What would you say is, um, is, is something you could talk about as progress? What, what's happened as a result? Can you actually feel, you know, uh, something change? And You know, that's always a difficult question. But it's funny because as I listened to this, it occurred to me that what Jung is experiencing, and I'm, uh, again, I'm not saying I experienced it in, in the way that he has, but... But Watts ta uh, talks about Jung as having a unity in himself. And I think that's an important thing. You know, it's like becoming more whole within yourself, which has to include the acceptance of, of the shadow, which is what Jung was all about. So it said he could feel anxious and afraid. He could feel guilty without being ashamed of himself, that there was an integration he didn't get. He had not gotten rid of the what I would call the defilements, you know, the negative uh, thoughts, emotions, actions, whatever. He had not gotten rid of them, but he wasn't attacking himself. He, in, you know, no recriminations, which you said. He wasn't attacking himself uh, for for feeling them, and so that, in other words, his reactions. He was not reacting towards himself. And as you do that, then you are doing that every day to everybody else that you see, that you come in contact with. So that is a huge, huge and so I could say that I've noticed I'm not, I don't attack myself the way that I used to a, a long time ago. And that has been, to me, a, a fantastic um, uh, progress, um, way beyond anything else, I would say, um, you know, not hating myself the way that I did before for all of this shit, right? Um, and and I like a lot, I love what he says, uh, Watts says about this, the fact that he's able to hold all of this in one, un, in, in a unity of himself, right, uh, is a profound kind of humor. And that reminds me of Trungpa Rinpoche, another one of our low-hanging fruit people, uh, who, uh, who, uh, um, you know, a sense of humor about your predicament is an invaluable, invaluable uh, method, uh, way of of getting some leverage over incriminating yourself every second for everything you think or feel or do. So I I love that part, Dave. You know, <laughs> you know the book you gave me once, the Agora book, mm. uh, Robert Svoboda's book about Villa yep. Melanda. In the last page of the first volume, he says there are three L's, L's, that you should say to yourself just before you go to sleep. And they involve, did I live today? Did I love today? And did I laugh today? Mm. 
and and slight explication would be, did I live today? Did I live gratefully for this life that I've been given? Or did I just throw it away a part of today? Did I just get angry? Did I eat too much? Did I, you know, blah, blah, blah. Did I love today? doesn't just mean did I love my partner or did I love, uh, you know, a spiritual master or something. He means by it, did I ease the burden on someone else today? And did I laugh today? Did I get a perspective sufficiently uh, uh, real to see that you have to have a sense of humor about this thing called life? Because if you don't, you're just going to be in deep misery mm. because there's so much, uh, you know, we quote around us all the time and we're going to go on doing that forever. I am, um, <laughs> you know, and I look at his video every day as part of my life. I have to work with it and I love it. And, you know, he's the best on this uh, because, you know, he just makes it easier for us to, by his pronouncements, by his books, and by his very manner, uh, to see that, you know, we must gain perspective other than that created by desires and prejudices. And it's amazing how much, how much of our life is based upon prejudices. I mean, sometimes I can't believe people I know really well who just will not see something because they're tremendously prejudiced against it, you know. Mm. And that ties into the business of being prejudiced against something in yourself. I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that, but I know that, you know, you can talk about being, I'm a social democrat and I'm a humanitarian and I'm a progressive. But then, you know, you, you, you find yourself doing a selfish act and you let it go. And you think it's okay because it's me doing stuff. Like nobody's, nobody's looking. And mm. the fact is that your own soul, going back to RD, your own soul is looking at it, not judgmentally, but it knows it. It knows what you've done. And that uh, law of Newtonian physics applied to karma, cause, effect, action, reaction. As far as I can see, and I'm not wise enough to know this, you know, fully, but it seems to me that once you start condemning others, and hating others, and yet not seeing this this shadow, as you call it, in yourself, uh, you're in trouble because there's going to be there's going to be some clash. There's going to be a clash at some point, and it's not going to be it's it's going to be difficult to get around it. That, but it's a harder a harder struggle to get around it if you haven't seen it before. That's why we have teachers, you know. I mean, all right, you're scaring me now. No, 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 <laughs> um, no. I mean, I'm scared off the time about this because, you know, we all make, I mean, there are people you won't call. There are people that, you know, whatever. Um, There's going to be a clash that's going to come. Well, in the sense that I'm, I'm just speaking from my own experience, that, you know, that, that there comes a time sometimes when you realize, oh, if I'd only be nice to that person, uh, they wouldn't have had this incredible problem with me or with the world, whatever it is. There's a kind of a, a another plane to go to where you can calmly go, I'm going to stop hating. I mean, I was a real hater. I, I, I admit it, you know. I mean, I just, you know, in, in the era of great British rock and roll, uh, if someone spoke to me about American music, I would just turn up my nose and walk away, you know. Like, don't, don't try, <laughs> you know, don't try and compare, you know, Tim Buckley to um, Rod Stewart or something silly. Just something silly like that. And I look back on it now all these years later and think, what was I thinking? This is trivial nonsense. But there was something in me. You can't compare Tim Buckley to Rod Stewart, okay? I agree with that completely. Oh, we should have a whole podcast just on that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> British and American thing. Um, just to jump in here, um, uh, the, the essence of this thing is, is just uh, fantastic. And, and one part 
uh, or the last part of it, Jung, um, Alan Watts actually uh, quotes Jung from a lecture that he gave some clergy, I, ble- I believe in England, um, and around unprejudiced objectivity in that state. Um, and it's just condemnation does not liberate nothing, and that's just what you're talking about. Uh, accepting ourselves as we are is the essence of, of, of our moral predicament and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. And, uh, you know, again, that's what you're, you're saying. Is he just puts this in, into such a refined focus of how important it is for us to be able to do that. And, and uh, I think what's, what maybe is... Uh, it's not missing. It's mentioned at the very end, and this is the critical, critical thing. And and it's uh, it, you could almost say it's sort of a prayer. You could you know you could almost use it as a mantra. And it's so I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness. I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness and. Um, we're we're doing uh, a retreat uh, coming up soon with Ramdas and Sharon Salzberg, and it's around compassion and adversity. And I'm going to moderate uh, one of the sessions with them. Um, and one of my biggest questions, which is which harks to this whole thing, is how do we establish compassion for ourselves? How do we get rid of judgment? Uh, you know, all of what Jung here has managed to do through a sense of humor, through uh, allowing it to be in the light. How do we get there? Is is kind of what my thing is, and I'll report back to you, Dave, on that one <laughs> Thank you. next month. So, um, uh, uh, you know what? We're as I said, we're gonna um, we're gonna transcribe this thing. This is uh, just a, a beautiful thing, and it's a beautiful uh, jumping point for us all to really consider. Um, we are at the end of our allotted time at this point. Oh, by the way, since, you know, we d- uh, I want to do another commercial. I mean, commercials come to me. They just, you know, they just pop into my head. Oh, but you're just, you just, you know, John Hamm in Mad Men. That's who yeah, you really <laughs> <John> are. <laughs> Mad Men's coming back, by the <laughs> Thank way. Thank goodness. Yeah. I have something to watch. Yeah, really. Um, but uh, this uh, here's something else for you to watch because you will be in New York and you could go on your computer and live stream. Uh, it's, it's been delayed uh, because of it's coming from Maui, but we are going to live stream Sharon and Ramdas uh, on uh, April 11th, 12th, and 13th at 5.30 West Coast time and 8.30 East Coast time. It'll be a couple hours each time. Uh, I mean, a couple hours each day uh, where we're going to talk about this, uh, you know, and certainly uh, get into dealing with adversity is something through uh, using compassion and love and so on. So I think it's going to be great. And Dave, you can join. And how you do that is you will go to ramdas.org and you will look for that online there's a banner there, and you go and sign up, and then you'll get sent a URL, and it's absolutely free. Except we do ask if you could, whoever is going to watch it will contribute so that we can continue to do these things at ramdas.org. So, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, I just wanted to do a shout-out to two of our most articulate 
listeners. Uh, Nick Patton, thank you so much for everything you write and your feedback to us. It's brilliant and we love it. And to Eric Lang, the unusual and extremely poetic Eric Lang, no, I don't think that Rago and I are aliens, except that he's from Canada and I'm from Britain. We so are I very we are much aliens. aliens, yes. But Eric yes. thought that maybe he had an experience with a UFO once, and he said he got a certain feeling in his body. And then he said, whenever he listens to mind rolling, he gets the same feeling. So he made the extrapolation that uh, Raghu Marcus and David Silver are actually aliens from another planet. And um, <laughs> I would say to him, thank you for that. <laughs> but we're just aliens from other countries. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, been great. Continue. Go to uh, mindrollingpodcast.com. You'll see Dave's blogs up there and like the transcription we're going to do and um, cutting up. We cut up pieces like we'll, we'll, we'll make this thing available too. We can do that too. You know, uh, we got it from YouTube. Um, maybe we'll get sued. Maybe we won't. Uh, we don't care. We're just, we don't care. you know, no, we just want to share. And to that end, we're going to see you next week. Yeah. Thanks for listening.